space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Welcome to our latest Star Trek episode. If you're a fan of Star Trek, then you should also access the Star Trek Appreciation Society on Facebook. It's an excellent source for news and information about all things Star Trek. We recommend checking this excellent group out. Now over to Jeff to introduce the show. Welcome to the latest in our Star Trek film series. Thank you very much, Darren, all your idea. It's a really good one. I've enjoyed these discussions so far. Today, we're going to be talking about Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. So, Darren, all your idea, and how are you today? I am prospering. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Not been tempted to go down the pub yet, then? No. Um, I'm not a pub guy anyway, to be honest, unless I'm on holidays. I'm just waiting for the cinemas to open. Yes, aren't we all? Aren't we all? God, yes, please. Last time we spoke about the film many Star Trek fans list as their favourite, The Wrath of Khan. This time we're going to start to see this odds and evens curse that seems to apply to the Star Trek film. But before we go to that, let's set the scene a little. And to do this, we need to go back and have a look at an aspect of Star Trek 2. Now, spoiler alert, obviously if you a Star Trek fan, there's no surprise here, but <laughs> Spock died at the end of Star Trek 2. At the time of release of Star Trek 2, I was very cynical about the fact that they'd be bringing that character back. It was no surprise to me, the whole development of how it went through into 1984, and it was the search for Spock. Looking at this and preparing for the show, it wasn't as clear-cut as I thought. After the success of Star Trek II, Nicholas Meyer actually turned it down, and he turned it down because certain scenes were filmed and added to his vision of Star Trek II once he'd finished. Darren, I'm going to throw that to you. Yeah, I mean, what what it comes down to is originally one of the reasons why Nimoy was enticed back was because there was promised a a big death for the character which he found really intriguing. Paramount and the producers, they all assumed that Nimoy now hated Star Trek, hated the character and basically wanted to kill him off. There was even a story that Nimoy had it in his contract that Spock was to be killed off and not brought back. What happened is that Nimoy actually enjoyed the filming of Star Trek 2. He found the filming a lot better than the experience he had in the first film. And so he started to come around to the idea that he may not want to disappear entirely from the saga. Towards the end, they decided to add just a couple of scenes in just to um, lay the groundwork for the possibility of Spock being back. Now, one of them was Nimoy touches uh, McCoy's um, face and just says, remember. Defrost Kelly, by the way, didn't actually know what that was regards to and we actually ed- added the uh, the remember line in later another scene that was added was right at the end of the film now this one was partly because the test audiences thought the film ended on a downer because by this time it looked like Nimoy was very keen to come back they decided to go a little bit extra and so they recorded just one afternoon a simple shot of Spock's coffin being found in the on the planet Genesis. And this was actually a surprise to Leonard Nimoy because he didn't know about the coffin scene until he actually saw the film at the premiere. By now, it looked like uh, Nimoy's definitely going to return because he'd done an interview with some Star Trek fans and he'd actually sort of promised them that, yes, Spock will return at some point. You know, so he, he was always going to come back, but it's just interesting how, how that scene was snuck in uh, at the end. Yeah. I, did, I didn't know any of that. That's amazing. Okay. Right. No, I, I, I must admit, I didn't until I was doing some research. They first went to Nicholas Meyer because Star Trek II is a big success. They wanted to repeat that. Meyer was clearly upset by these scenes that even he didn't know about were added, as Darren's just described. He said, as far as I'm concerned, Spock's dead. I do not want to do a resurrection story. Bearing in mind how Star Trek II went, do you think he should have come back? I mean, he was to come back in a later film. He directed Star Trek VI. Do you think he should have done three as well? I think in hindsight, when you look at what he brought to the table, because uh, in Star Trek II, not only did he direct it, but it sounds like he pretty much 
save the script. He rewrote it all at the, at the last minute. If you look at the, the film he came back with, Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country, that's one of the better films. Definitely in my um, top four, I would say. His presence is missed, I think, somewhat. But the fact of the matter is that there were other politics in play, which I think we're going to come to, that meant he wasn't, you know, he wasn't going to come back. I think he's definitely missed here. We'll never know for sure, but if you just look at the, the two films that he did and compare them to the others, I, I think, yeah, it was a big loss, uh, particularly with this one. I don't think so. I, no, I thought Leonard Nimoy's direction for a first-time director on a film of this scale, you know, it's $16 million, I thought it wasn't bad. Okay, it's not great, but it wasn't bad. And it added a certain something. It certainly did. I wasn't a great fan of the director in the second one, so I thought the third one had just that as a Star Trek fan, not obviously like a mega fan like Darren is, but as a fan of the whole program and series, it just added something for me. Oh, Nimoy's directed this. I know it's a pretty simplistic approach, but I just liked it. I'm actually with Darren on this. I, I think Meyer was missed. I think he built up a world. They did copy in this, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. But I think Meyer is a more structured, a more interesting director than Nimoy. I think Nimoy, it was his first film as director. And to be honest, he comes across as a TV director to me. I think he got better with four, but I think on this, I don't think it was that great. As Gene Roddenberry said at the time, you know, when they hired, when Eisner allowed Nimoy to become director, they'd made a rod for their own back because this is one director you could not fire. Yeah, that's true. I personally like him. I think he was a, a sensible choice because he's someone who, let's face it, is already involved with the franchise. He knows the cast. He knows the crew. He knows everyone's personalities and how to get the best out of them. Which, let's face it, what was a problem with, with the first film. You had people coming in uh, trying to work all these egos out. I think for the harmony of, of the film, I think he was you know, a, a good choice on that. I think as well, you, you've also got to look at the fact that Offering Nimoy the director's chair was a big part of uh, enticing him to come back. I think he did a good job. I do think he, you know, he brought a good element to it. He uh, focused more on the characters and the personalities of the crew, which I think was a good thing. But there were some little sort of quibbles that will we'll come to, to later. But I, I think he did a, a real good job. I have no problem with how the film is shot or directed. I personally sort of you know, like what he brought to the table. He did sort of start a tradition as well that a lot of the cast in the TV shows, the cast will get their opportunities to, to direct, you know, in, on Next Generation and, and Deep Space Nine. Or, you know, if you ever look at the director's thing, a lot of them got a pick in there. Even though I think Maya may have been a, a lost as, as a professional, I think Nimoy did bring a lot to the table. And, and I'm personally happy with, you know, what, what he did here. Well, how did it go down with the fans? Did the fans go, oh, Nimoy's directing it, we'll have to go and see this, or... Did the fact that Nimoy's directing it boost the fans' uh, appreciation of the film or were they more keen to see it now? It's hard to say because back then you, you didn't have things like the, the internet. or, or I, I wasn't really involved with fans' community, so I, I, I had no sort of idea. The buzz that I do remember from, you know, because I'd sort of read like magazines and things like that was the fact that Spock was returning. That was the, the really big play. I do remember, though, in a lot of the sort of the, the interviews and the uh, you know the, the newspaper articles and that, they did make a big thing of the fact that Nimoy was director. Back in those days, a lot of films, you know, particularly like your sort of popular press, they don't really go too much into directors and stuff unless it was a, a massive name or a celebrity. So I, I think that probably created you know a, a bit of interest, and also was sort of like a. I guess reassuring that this was like kept within Star Trek, that this was a Star Trek guy. We weren't going to bring in someone who was going to like try yeah, and change. Yeah, good point. Trying to go and mm. try and change the whole sort of, you know, direction of it, which, which you, you do sort of get. You can see that when you bring somebody in that they sort of, you know, particularly with the sort of like the later films, that they instill what they want Star Trek to be and sort of make it into something that maybe the fans aren't. So I think it was. You look at it and you know it's somebody who's basically going to be at least respectful to the franchise and give people what they want. So we've got now the director in place. Obviously, you need a script. Up to this stage in two, some of the script was good because it was rewritten by Nicholas Meyer, proven writer-director and certainly a good writer. 
But in this, Harve Bennett, a TV writer and producer, wrote the script. Now, this is a guy whose credits include episodes of The Mod Squad, The Bionic Woman, and The Invisible Man for TV. Um, <laughs> I think they picked another subpar writer. But do you disagree with me? Do you think Bennett, the scriptwriter, was a good choice? Graham, I'll start with you. Yeah, well, the script is is not great, is it? It is very much a TV episode. And the first notes, when I watched it, I was writing my notes as well. The first thing I've written down is this is very much the most TV of the three we've watched so far. And it's really only a continuation of the second movie. And therefore, the writer doesn't have so much to do. He's just expanding on established themes. I wasn't impressed with the, with the writing. But I suppose it's a workmanlike job he's done here. And he, and he did produce something that, you know, still stands up 36 years later. So, yeah, it's okay. But, yes, it's definitely TV-level scripting. It, it feels like that they were going cheap, basically, because Bennett was already involved. He, he, he was actually the one who come up with the original story that got reworked for Rafa Khan. It feels like that they... The, the crew, the cast, the Star Trek franchise as a whole was enough to sell it, but they didn't need to bring in a big name writer. They just needed someone to basically try and mm. work around the concept of bringing Spock back. The, the first script did not go down well. Um, William Shatner apparently sat down with Nimoy and Bennett and went through the script scene by scene because apparently the, the, in the original story, it was almost comedy-like in the fact that the, the crew went on this like really contrived mission and there was all these like massive coincidences and things that led them to accidentally come across Spock. And it was Shatner who basically rightfully said, you need to make the crew more proactive. They're the ones actually going out and physically trying to find Spock. The, the film's called Search for Spock. So the crew, they have to be like, you know, going deliberately to find him, not just accidental. To me, it was just somebody involved, somebody on the cheap. And I, I think they may, maybe have sort of been stung by bringing in writers in the past who, again, were not going to play ball. Could be other Star Trek. Every idea that they came in had to be reworked with committees. We'll come back to that. So I think that's a really interesting point and a really interesting problem it created in the films. So we've got all the elements in place. The film is now being made. So now let's talk about this plot of the film that they reworked and what they eventually come up with. They go looking for Spock, <laughs> the end. There you go. <laughs> okay. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. It's in the title. Who'd have thought yeah. it? <laughs> and they find him. Hey. Okay. So it's set right after the events of Star Trek 2 and a battered Enterprise is returning home with the loss of Spock weighing heavy over Kirk and McCrew's mind. But Coy appears to be having the worst time. He's so, he seems to be suffering a nervous breakdown uh, with a bizarre behaviour that sees him having um, schizophrenic episodes where he starts to speak like Spock and take on Spock's characteristics. After docking, the crew are told that the Enterprise is to be decommissioned and that the crew are not to discuss the Planet Genesis affair to anyone. After a visit from Spock's father, Savick, Kurt discovered that Spock melded with McCoy shortly before his death and transferred his catcher, which is like the Vulcan life essence, into him. And that the only way for them to be released and find peace is to bring both McCoy and Spock's body to Vulcan to separate them in the ceremony. Starfleet denies Kirk's request, so the crew breaks McCoy out of jail, who has been arrested for speaking about Genesis and attempting to secure transport there and they steal the Enterprise heading off for Genesis. However, events on Genesis have taken a disturbing turn. The planet's weather and ecosystems are spiraling out of control, and the planet is unstable and seems to be destroying itself. When Kirk's son David and Savick beam down to the planet to investigate an unexpected life form, they found that Spock has been reborn as a child and is growing at an accelerated rate, which is connected towards the development of the planet. Complicating matters even further is the emergence of a Klingon ship who have intercepted information on Genesis and want to claim it for their own. In saving Spock, Kirk may have to sacrifice things which are very dear to his heart. Let's start looking into this film. So high level, and we're going to drill down on aspects of this shortly. Darren, do you think it's a good addition to the Star Trek franchise or not? I personally do. And I have to say, I don't buy into the odd film curse 
I, I think it worked, and I think this film gets unfairly lambasted to be used as that mythology. For me, it's not a perfect film. It's basically Star Trek done on a cheap. It is almost like a TV episode, like a two-parter. There are two stories going on at the same time here. One of them that I actually really love, and that's Kirk's Rebellion and his quest to find Spock. Turning against Starfleet, the, the whole crew coming together to heading off and making themselves to be outlaws. All that I absolutely love. The other story really slows down the film, and that's all the stuff on Genesis. It's very awkward because obviously they had to come up with a way to bring Spock back. And to, to me, that, that's the bit that sort of, you know, just, you know, slows the film down. Those are bits which I, I don't find interesting at all. The the whole thing on the other side with Kirk, you know, I, I really love. I, I, I love how they're freeing the Enterprise and they're sort of going on for like, you know, one last ride into glory. I always love when heroes basically become the rebels and the outlaws and go against authority, which, you know, for, for so long, this crew were always basically a very military crew. They followed orders and everything. And, and now they're basically just sort of saying, you know, we're basically going to, you know, look after our friend. I do think it's very uneven. The resurrection is really contrived. It's so very convenient so that, you know, it sort of happens in a way that they bring Spock back just at the body age that they left him. So there's a lot of sort of, um, (laughs) there's a lot of suspension of disbelief that you have to do as a fan. Everything after Genesis, after the defeat of the Klingon, it's almost like there's a really long extended epilogue. I'm a, a lot, less negative than a lot of people. It's by no means anywhere near my favourite Star Trek ones. There's a gap stop, getting the uh, but you know, but the makeup of the crew back on track and getting Spock in. And I, I think there's more to enjoy in there than things that, that that don't. And it's only about 90 minutes, so it doesn't take up most of your time. I'd actually echo almost everything that Darren said. I, I went into this with oh God, it's number three. It's an odd number. This is going to be terrible. So I, don't, I, don't, I bought completely into the prejudice when I started. And as you go through it, you think, no, this is not bad. It's Star Trek. They're all together. I also loved the bit where they became the rebels and they went off and did their own thing, almost became space pirates. Yeah? And I thought that was really, really fun and different and changed things up a bit. And it's mainly a film about loss and and recovery, isn't it? I mean, he loses his best friend Spock, he loses the Enterprise, he loses his son David, you know, and it's another film around Kirk and Kirk's actions and what happens when um, he does things that later have other influences. Uh, in fact, the whole uh, philosophy of the film is, you know, the needs of the, the many outweigh the few, or the needs of the few might outweigh the many. Definitely, as and I would echo this, a lot from Darren's point of view, the stuff on the planet on Genesis is shockingly bad. And, you know, nobody reacts when things blow up or crash next to them. They just go, oh, tree fell over. Oh, huge holes appeared in the ground with fire coming out of it. I'm just going to walk around it. And some of the plotting around the Klingons is a bit clunky. Would a Klingon really go around the back of somebody to stab them in the back is that an honorable thing for the klingons to do as a form of execution funny enough gray and darren and i had a chat about that the other night and darren won me over but we'll come back to that that didn't work for me and the bit of uh spock going through pom far isn't it that's what it's called mm. pom fritz pom fritz yeah i always had a problem with the vulcan seven-year itch without marilyn monroe so i didn't like those bits but I, overall I was very impressed. I was, I think I liked it more last night when I rewatched it than I did back in 84. Just, so. just to add to something you said there, the studio was very nervous about the Pomfar. Because, because, because if this is like a forty, because he should have, he should have had sex with her. <laughs> well, that, that is the implication what? because he's 14. And they were sort of very worried about what the implications were on whether Savic. Yeah, whether oh. she was going to have sex with him. I, I think Nimoy tried to placate them, but there was sort of more of a sort of like a, a spiritual thing going on between them. Um, I, I think maybe she maybe she just <laughs> left it. I think she just left him with some Romulan porn and just say, you know, um, you know sort yourself out. 
so I first saw this film when it opened back in 84. I thought it was okay. But then, you know, I was in the process of preparing to get married and everything looks good then. And and over the years, I've, I've looked on this as a, as a bit of a filler more than anything else until I come to it again and studied it for this podcast. And it's anti-Federation. So it, it shows the Federation as fascist in its actions. In fact, it's a lot like the, the Johnson government. It suppresses just about everything. But when you get there, as in when you get to the planet that's supposed to be locked off, all they've got is one little spaceship with a couple of people flying around it saying nothing to see here. And then you've also got the other theme on this, big anti-science theme in this. Science is bad. The Genesis creation is like a Frankenstein's monster. And it's a very pro-religious film. This is a film that actually should be shown on TV every Easter. Uh, <laughs> along with other resurrection films, it, I think it's shockingly written, and there are half-assed themes all the way through it. Uh, there are certain aspects of it that are quite good, but overall, I would prefer to rewatch Star Trek One than have to sit through this. Oh, again. you're kidding! No. Okay. On that note, we've all put our cards <laughs> on the table. Where we stand. Now, I want to talk about the cast, and I want to go back to what Darren said earlier, which I find quite interesting. One of the things of bringing Nimoy in, as you said, Darren, is he knows the Star Trek world, he knows these people, and he knows to get the best out of them. Do you think he did that here? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this this film is is one of my favourite, and, and the next one as, as well, Star Trek Four, are my favourite interpretations of the crew, because... They're not there because of duty or because of the military ranking or anything like that. This is the first time that we see them as as friends, as as, as real comrades. They cast off Starfleet. They, they cast off. They basically put their careers, you know, in jeopardy. Uh, you know, their, their liberty and everything to help their two friends, McCoy and Spock. That is something I can you know re- really get into. To me, even if a film is is not greatly written or makes sense and stuff, that sort of loyalty, you know, that that's something that I find really appealing. I mean, there's a bit where Kirk's trying to convince the commander of Starfleet to let him go, and and the commanders no. There's a shot of Kirk's face, and you just see in his head that he's not really listening to the commander. He's made up his mind that he's going anyway. And even though he says, of, of course, you're right, you just know that in Kirk's mind, he's, he's decided, screw this, I'm, I'm going. You, you know that he's basically going to stand by his, his friends and then they sort of go and they, they, they do the, uh, the, the prison break and everything. But one of the things that I, I, I like as well is everybody gets to do a little bit of something. In the other films, they basically just sat at the consoles and they might have a, you know, a, a little thing to apply. Here, Sulu gets to help get rid of the guards. Scotty uh, sabotages the Excelsior, uh, you know, Ahura sort of p- plays her part and she's like, you know, the, the liaison with, with Vulcan. Everyone gets to li- do a little thing. And, and I think in a way that must have come from Nimoy as, as well. It's notable that most of them aren't actually in uniforms. They're all in like sort of 24th century casual gear, which I think is quite cool, which shows that they're basically on the own. There's a scene in the film that always makes me laugh and it's when McCoy's in the brink Kurt shows up and he says to McCoy, how many fingers am I holding up? And he does the Vulcan salute. And that always makes me laugh. And, and, and McCoy's reaction <laughs> when he goes, that's not very damn funny. I, I just think that little interaction to me is, is just so you know funny. And, and basically, I, I, I love it. So that's an example of how much like camaraderie and banter there is between them. And, and this, this is kind of where I, I really think that they sort of you know came into their role as like a unit. Make it quick, Admiral. They are moving him to the Federation funny farm. Yes, poor friend. I hear he's fruity as a nutcake. Two minutes. Jim. How many fingers do I have up? That's not very damn funny. Your sense of humor's returned. Uh, hell it has. What's that? Lexerin. Lexerin? What for? You're suffering from a Vulcan mind meld, Doctor. That green-blooded son of a bitch. It's his revenge for all those arguments he lost. I like that breakout scene as well. There's some very 
politically incorrect remarks when the guard says to Kirk, well, yeah, we're moving McCoy out to the Federation funny farm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you think, all oh, right, that's not going to go down well. I love the final scene where Nimoy finally, where Spock gets his memories back and all the crew just surround him. And we just look all so pleased and happy together. Like, like the, the band's back together for yeah. And he just does this little thing where he does the eyebrow thing. And you can actually, even though you're behind yes. him, you actually see Shatner start laughing. Now, I don't know if that was meant to be there or if that was, it looks it looks so natural that you think maybe it was an ab lib. Yeah. I, I don't know. It, but there's just something like comforting about that final scene. That just uh, uh, the, the things that I love about Star Trek Three are in that moment, you know. I do agree with with both of you that this is one element that does work the crew uh, playing up to the strengths from the TV and and I think there is a lot about now comedy on it actually and some of the best scenes that stand out for me were the Sulu scene where the guy calls him Tiny don't call me Tiny which yeah. apparently he didn't want to do but it's just a brilliant scene and then you've also got Scotty saying well it'll take eight weeks but I'll do it for you in two sounding like, you know, the 23rd century uh, equivalent of a dodgy builder with his quotes these days. You've got that aspect of it. And I thought that interplay, for me, DeForest Kelly wins it every time. He's just as real charm as an actor and nobody can put cynicism across like him. So I thought that was really good. So, yeah, I do agree on that. As a cast together, they're really good. There are other things that let it down, which we'll go into. If I just oh. to add to that little, just a little bit of trivia, what Scotty says that when he he, uh, he says it would take eight weeks, but I'll do it in two. There's this episode, the uh, Next Generation, where he actually uh, appears in it, where they, they find that he's sort of been locked in stasis, and he interacts with the uh, Next Generation crew, and he actually has a go at Geordi in it because Geordi always plays it straight and tells Picard exactly. What, what repairs a time? And, he, and uh, Scotty says to him, no, you always times them by four. And that way it makes you look really good when you bring it in earlier. So I think that's like a, a nice little thing that comes <laughs> yeah. up later. Yeah. Okay. So let's look at some of the other casts. Now, the big missing person this time is B.B. Besh. Doesn't come back as Carol Marcus. And it was a half Bennett choice not to bring her back. It's nothing to do with the actress. Is she missed? Graham. No, not not at all. They so only even needed... though she's the creator of Genesis, she's yeah, not missed. Yeah, I know, but she's not the action-orientated kid or son of Kirk. I mean, that, as we said before, the bits on the planet are a bit formulaic, and I think that it, that is a complete and total plot device, putting his Kirk's son on the planet and in peril and in danger, and then finally having him killed by the Klingons. Yeah, I could have done without the whole scene, never mind without her. I could have done without that, that whole thing on the planet. But that's just me. I didn't miss her at all. David is the um, representative of anything to do with Genesis. And yeah, I, I don't think that she would have added. I, I never really missed her or, or thought that she, uh, you know, she, she, had, she had a great role to play in with Rafa Khan as someone from Kirk's past. But in, in this one, I, I don't think that she would have had anything to to add, unless for the wrote in a subplot for her of some sort. But I, I personally didn't miss her. In two, she is seen as the creator of Genesis. And Genesis basically is a con job. It doesn't work. So she fooled them all with that stuff in the cave. So I thought he might be able to confront her. That said, I, I think the phone call that took place after this between her and Kirk would have been interesting. Uh, bad, <laughs> bad news and worse news. Bad news, Genesis doesn't work. Worse news, our son is dead. Right, bye. And um, and yeah. I find out that you used illegal technology to produce Genesis, so you're now up on uh, yeah, criminal You'd be case. up on charges if I was part of the Federation, but I'm an outlaw, so bye. It wasn't her. It was the, the son. He was the bad guy there. Maybe I mis misunderstood too then. I, I always thought she was the creator of it. Well, she she was, but his little bit that he did, he obviously like went and got that illegal stuff. It was him that sort of brought those elements in personally. I, I, I didn't get the impression it was the whole right. thing. I just got it that he was the one that was sort of, okay. you know, bringing the so, thing in. One person who didn't come back, another person who didn't come back, sorry, it was Kirstie Alley. Uh, she, she was replaced by Robin Curtis uh, as Savick. Why was that, Dan? There's a few conflicting stories about this. Uh, for, for years, the story was that Kirstie Alley 
didn't want to come back because she didn't want to be typecast in the role. According to any interviews done since, it, that, that doesn't seem to be a case because Kirsty uh, Alley was apparently really liked the Savick role on the first film. Apparently, she actually loved walking around with the years and everything. She, she had, a, you know, she enjoyed it. Um, but what apparently went down is when she was in the first film, they only had a contracted for one film. We didn't have a, um, a sequel clause or anything. So we had to renegotiate the, the contract. Now, she, in interviews, claims that they wanted her to be in the film for longer in a bigger role, but they wanted to cut her fee. The producers actually sort of denied this. And I did find a story that her agent went, and she, the agent wanted more money for her to come back. And they said that they weren't going to give more, but they were going to wanted to pay her the same as what she got for Star Trek Two. He basically rejected this. And that he went back to Kirstie Alley and told her that they wanted to cut her, her wages. Even though she liked the role, as, as a professional, she couldn't basically justify doing a, a bigger role and taking less money. It wasn't like so to come, you know, considered like, you know, a, you know, an ethical actor, actor thing to do. So basically someone is has been telling porkies uh, uh, along the line. So it's not something that we know, but it uh, it certainly wasn't because that she didn't want to do it. I personally was one of the ones who actually liked Kirstie Alley in the role. I thought she she brought a bit of mm. sort of banter and a bit of youth to it. I, I think that the, the new actress, she, she's at times she's very wooden. And, and apparently, some of that you can blame on Nimoy because he apparently asked her not to watch Kirstie Alley in, in Star Trek 2. He didn't want her to basically base her role on her. And he coaxed her on how to be a Vulcan. So basically, any inconsistency, you can kind of blame it at him there. The, the character's not supposed to be full Vulcan. She's supposed to be half Vulcan, half Romulan. So this kind of makes her completely Vulcan. And I think it, it just it makes her less interesting and colder. And I, I do think, sadly, quite wooden. And, and I think it's a shame because they could have done a really good arc with with, with, with Savic, uh, particularly later on when we did um, Star Trek Six, because she was meant to come back as the as the traitor in that one, but you know she she could have been like an interesting character to come along. Today, Robin Curtis is an estate agent, so that sums that up as well. Let's go to someone who was cast. Then they brought in Christopher Lloyd as Krug. Now Lloyd was a comic actor known for his TV work on Taxi at the time. Graham, do you think that was a good or bad choice? I didn't just did not get his character. He seemed to be all over the place. In fact, the Klingons to me were a bit of a disappointment, you know, for a sort of honourable military race comedian, really. No, it just didn't work for me. Your honour thing, I'm now going to let Darren persuade you as he persuaded me, because you mentioned the knife in the back. Yeah, yeah. Darren, explain that one away then. Well, I mean, the the thing is, at this point, I think there were still... really re- relaunching the, the Klingons in this one because they've they not appeared hardly at all in the first two films. And if you look back to the, the original TV show, but the Klingons were always more of a, um, they were sort of a warrior race, but they were very sort of sneaky and underhanded and scheming. That was kind of a, you know, if you watch a lot of those episodes, there's not a lot of straight on sort of, you know, yeah. War about them, but you know, they're sort of like a like conniving sort of working behind the scenes sort of thing. The honor, aspect i think is sort of is mentioned when kurgan basically kills his lover or, or it could even be wife when he says that we will remember you with with honor it, it lays the groundwork for some things that would come in later although you sort of class the, the, the klingons as this this honor thing if you watch the next generation in deep space nine there's actually their whole society yes. is built upon lots and lots of different clans and and houses almost like a game of throne things and some of them are more honourable than others. Some some of them are downright sort of schemers. There's one house in the um, yeah. in, in the start of COVID, the House of Duras, and it turns out that they're the ones that they actually betray Klingons to the Romulans and work with Romulans many times. Just because they're Klingons doesn't mean that they're actually you know honourable. There's lots of sort of different houses with their own sort of right sort of you know makeup. The, the way he treats his crew and everything is more like a pirate. So I imagine that he's one of the sort of the less reputable ones, stabbing the prisoner in the back. I think that just sort of is, you know, is an indication of the sort of of the house of the house that he comes from in this particular 
makeup. There is actually a, a, a quote in one of the Deep Space Nine ones because there was a time when they became villains again. And um, there's a time when there's a possibility that some Klingons are laying in ambush and, and using some uh, injured um, starships as bait. And someone says, oh, that's not very honourable. And, and Worf says, well, Klingons are the same, but there's nothing more honourable than victory. So there is a lot of leeway in this sort of this, uh, this honour, sense of honour about them. <laughs> And that's why we have you on this, Darren, because you, 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 you know, you know the, the law. Together. Yeah, I yeah. mean, my, my view of the, of the Klingons is very much through the lens of Worf. So I see him as honourable. And it's okay, so he's probably from the goody Klingons rather than the yeah. baddies. Okay. Yeah. So and your view a, on Christopher Lloyd, Darren? Uh, I actually quite like him. Um, he, the, the reason why he got this role is Nimoy saw him in um, One Floor of a Cuckoo's Nest and, and like that sort of like that insanity that he that he prayed. I, I, I like this mixture of him because he's like a pirate lord. There's actually like a sort of a craziness to him and an insanity and, and ruthlessness. Like like I say, he his very first introduction, he uh, you know he kills his lover because she's seen too much, which which she is actually fine with which I think is is quite interesting. But also he has this regalness about him, as if he comes from some sort of like Klingon royalty. He's got this sort of swagger about him. The scene where he captures people on the planet and he's so demeaning to them. He sort of, you know, he mentions, uh, I, I find a Vulcan boy, a, a weakling human and a woman. He's just got this thing that he looks down on everything. He's got this superiority. And, and actually as a, as a one film villain, I actually quite like him. I, I think he's, got a bit of a craziness to him incidentally originally but the idea wasn't that they were going to be klingons they were going to be romulans that's why the klingon ship looks more like a, a romulan warbird than the klingon yes. ships and this was also the first time that you actually i think that you saw a klingon with a cloaking device because in the original series it was always the romulans who had the cloaking device not the klingons so this mm. again added to the klingon law going forward so there's a lot of things that we established in this one I wasn't that impressed with Lloyd on this. I know Lloyd rates it quite highly amongst his own performances. I think the baggage of the comedy that comes with Lloyd, Taxi before this when it opened, and of course since then Back to the Future, I think stays and demeans this character. Plus the fact you hardly see him in the first 45 minutes. I think he's in there for a couple of minutes. So whereas Khan's present is felt all the way through to, this guy comes and goes. And I'm interested in you picking up on the buccaneer thing. So he's like a Klingon Jack Sparrow then, basically. Yeah. With even down to some of those sort of one-liners. It plays well a little bit because uh, into the whole naval thing about, you know, Star Trek, it yes. was called like um, Hornblower in Space. And and to me, this sort of goes on that because not only have you got this sort of, this Starfleet being like the Navy, You've got these like pirate vessels out in the in the wilderness. Actually, I do agree. I think two and three in terms of film. And obviously, we want to go back to the others, but I don't see any two films that link together in terms of style like two and three. So you've got that hornblower naval sort of aspect that Maya really played on in two, and it comes through here. Even down to Christopher Lloyd's gun, looks like a flintlock uh, sort of yes. pistol. You've got the old pistols on Kirk's wall, so his sort of looking back at that time. You've also got Horner's music, which is one of the very few things that improves over two because he takes those themes and expands them in a wonderful way. So I like that continuity. I don't think that happens in any other Star Trek film like it does between two and three. And actually, you could expand it even further because... Kirk and his crew are basically they're, they're mutineers, and that carries over into the fourth oh. film when the, the the Klingon bird of prey that they end up flying back to Earth. They nickname it the Bounty. Ah. That, that that again oh, is yes. sort of like carries on the naval themes. So, so yeah, you know, and I think you're, you're right. These are probably the only three three had the fourth one that there sort of is like you know a, a continuous link on. Although I will say that the um, the sixth one draws on quite a few things that happen in this one. But yeah, it does. You know, as as a saga, this you know this one does, you know, carry on you know really well from the, the second one. It takes off, you know, just like a, we think a few weeks after the second one. But again, if you take it in terms of music, they weren't going to settle on another composer till well into this when they brought Goldsmith back consistently for a few. 
they tried different composers for the next few films, so they brought different tones to it. Let's look at the subject matter, because Star Trek is all about its philosophy, and in this, you've got major losses throughout this film. And it's almost like Private Ryan. You know, in Private Ryan, you question what is a loss worth. They bring Ryan back, and obviously the cost to that platoon is very, very high. In this, they're going out to find Spock, but along the way, Kirk loses his son, his spaceship, his career, potentially his freedom if he's captured. And so loss runs all the way through it to get to that gain of Spock returned at the end. Does that work for you? It's the question that basically never you can never really answer. This film, what I like about some is it turns the, the original philosophy on uh, Rafa Khan is that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of, of the one, which from a cold pers- perspective, an illogical perspective, you, you know it is correct. One, one life, we would say, should be sacrificed for the whole. But when it comes to then your friends, where do you go with that? And I think it's a question that you, you can't sort of answer. And, it, and, it's, and, it's, and it's interesting that the one who brings up the question is Spock's father at the end. You know, the Vulcan also t- it says to him, you know, you, you've lost your, your son you know, your your shape. And he's the one that sort of, you know, whereas the others don't really question it. Their friend or their comrade was in need and they had to, you know, to them it's unquestionable that they had to take the risks. It's a thing of the heart. It's not of the, of the head. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I thought this was a film of consequences. Yes, we're looking at the ethics of the thing, you know, focusing on, on the outcome. Spock made the choice in Khan, you know, that the needs of the many did it outweigh the needs of of the one, as as Kirk says at the end. And I think this whole film is about the consequences of that. I mean, there is an awful lot of philosophy in Star Trek. I mean, in the second one, there's the, the isn't there the, the line about change is the essential process of all existence. It's quite deep and uh, for these sorts of uh, standard uh, films, I just thought it was it was great the fact that you know this was the consequences and the consequences was a lot of loss um, and they get their friend back at the end and and they're all together as a team. So I thought it was a nice nice philosophical circle there. Yeah, and I think that's part of the cop out of this film. Oh, uh, I think of course you would. Well, no, essentially. If you think about it, so so yes, Kirk has made the decision he will lose all these things. I mean, even the death of his son, which we'll come and talk about in a minute, but even that, he's fairly dismissive of it come the end. Everything is focused on getting his friend back. But there's another theme running alongside this, and that's man versus environment. The Genesis Project is destroying itself because it's unstable, and Spock's is linked into that planet. So unless the environment is destroyed, so the man is destroyed. I think this film would have been much better if the ending had been they've got Spock, they've got him off this planet, the planet blows up and Spock dies because he's linked to that environment of that planet. And I thought then the whole thing of loss is, well, was it worth it? Because ultimately, even though you tried, your friend had died. And I think that would have made a much better film. That's the dumbest thing Over to you guys. Wow, Jeff, there you go. That got a reaction. So so Spock dies in the second one, Spock dies in the third one. You know, as that planet is growing, he's suffering as well. And when it's destroyed, he's still alive. That that makes no sense to me. So so you say McCoy dies as well because obviously he, because Spock dies, they can't get rid of the uh, chakra from mccoy so he goes uh, so, everyone, no, so at the end everyone's you're... just sat around saying um well that was all a waste of time well we tried the vulcans would have got it out of him they they said that they could have done that uh, i think that's when um spock's father goes at the beginning why aren't you coming to lay his eternal spirit to rest so we can meld it in with everything else it was a bonus they got his body back and could put it back together it's like a two-for-one deal theaters would have been burning with riots if that had happened that's jeff's wish (laughs) well i I think if you want to pursue the theme of loss that they wanted i think that's the way to have done it and but i think the way that bennett copped out in that writing by having the planet destroyed and spock oh he's reached the age we want him to this is one of those coincidences you spoke about darren i just it's a coincidence but darren um, some people just want to watch the world burn yeah 
Okay, so I'm now going to leap back to my religious fundamentalist movie, right? Science and society structure sacrifice because of this religious recovery at the end. And the whole thing is about the resurrection. It's why Maya didn't want to touch it. It's just a ridiculous way to approach the whole thing. It, it, it's anti-science. Genesis doesn't work. Science doesn't work. It's full of lies. It's something the far right of today, Trump's lot, would love this film. But, of course, you two are going to say I'm talking absolute nonsense. Uh, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> a simple yes would have sufficed there. I mean, I mean, I'm all for reading themes into things and exploring stuff, but... I mean, for a start, it's science that actually brings Spock back, you know, accidentally and everything. It's not as, as if this no, is like a... No, it's not science. It's religion that brings them back. No, it doesn't. It's, it's, of course it's, it's it is. Genesis. It's a religious ceremony. It's Genesis that gets... That brings oh, I see what you mean. Sorry, back. yeah. That, that's the one that sort of, you know, sets yeah. him back off again. So he is actually dead. The, the, the idea is... Uh, is not right. to bring Spock back. It, the, the idea to bring his body to Vulcan it, originally is to like free his his catcher. It's not to we're not planning to resurrect Spock. Whereas it, the only reason why Spock comes back is it science. It's not like um, a, a, a Vulcan god resurrects him. So there's no. another theme you've missed. So the whole thing <laughs> of like the, the Vulcans wanting to use this as a weapon. In fact, you could use Genesis as a resurrection device. We'll make these planets. They won't last long. Fire your dead bodies on there, and all these people will come back to life. I think you're overthinking this, yeah. Jeff. You really are overthinking this. And every time you need to get them off the planet, bring them back, and then you need that woman to be like the brain equivalent of a USB cable to connect your person, people together. Wow, oh, come on. And you have to know you're dying, so you transfer your consciousness into the person you've, who's going to be your host for the resurrection. Oh, no, I, I, a lot of, you know? lot of admin, Jeff, a lot of admin. I think there's some, there is like a warning about science as in moving too quickly and cutting shortcuts and things like this, but I don't think it's actually anti-science as such. I think it's just a case of basically sort of unregulated science. There's like a spiritualism to the, the Vulcan. That's Frankenstein's monster then, what you I, said. I don't, well... Oh yeah, but I don't think there's like a a religious massive. You know, there's no sort of like you know Vulcan deity or anything like that. If anything, it's more like a new age type spirituality. I don't see it as religious fundamentalism. The Vulcans the, are space hippies. Hmm, exactly. Yeah, they bring him back from the dead. They have a big party. Probably get pissed. Put this consciousness back in him, and we're away. Okay, sounds good to me. I'd go to a party yeah. like that. Yeah, absolutely. There you get stoned out of your head, not into your head. I think a um, Vulcan party would okay. be very dull. So- <laughs> Just standing around talking <laughs> philosophy to each other. Right. Well, it depends what time. If you have it at the seven-year oh, yeah, yeah. on fire, <laughs> it might seven, be a lot more interesting. If it's your 21st <laughs> birthday, it's going to be a riot. But you have to fight your best friend to the death, so, you know. Right, I've tried to take you down my religious path, but you two are just not going to follow me, so let's go back and talk about other it's, aspects. It's of utilitarianism, and the philosophy at the, is at the heart of this, Jeff, so, not the religion. Again, one of the other themes is lost, but there's also a, a theme of renewal in the film. There's the decommissioning of the Enterprise by blowing it up. The Excelsior is shown as a potential replacement and tries to get a younger crew on board that. You've got people like you know the son, although he gets killed, and Savick. It all is doomed to fail. Nobody wants to step away from the characters you know and love. And bear in mind, these actors weren't getting any younger. They only had a couple more films in them, and sadly, a lot of them have gone today. Why couldn't they get it to change? I think that they laid a few seeds carrying on from the the previous film, where acknowledged that we were getting older. And then in this one, it brought back further to the fact that they were basically, you got the idea that they were soon to be like decommission. I mean, you know, the Enterprise was said to be, have its day and it was going to be decommissioned. So, you you know, you've got the idea then of they're either going to sort of like, you know, strip it or, or whatever they're going to do with it. And that the Excelsior is this new, brand new replacement with it, with this new transwarp capability and everything. And and there is sort of like a, a clash throughout the film between young and, and old. Because it's interesting, there's, there's a scene very early on where one of the young shipmates ask Kirk if there's going to be a party when they get back. Ahura turns around and she just sort of gives this guy a glance as if to say, or almost as if to say, you know, you're being inappropriate here. I think there's like a little clash there between 
the younger crew and the older. And there's also uh, later on when um, Uhura's in the, um, she's playing her part of the of the escape when she's in the um, transport room. And there's the young lad who's sort of mocking her because her career's coming down and he's saying he wants excitement and she's sort of like looking at him. It, incidentally, the acting from that young lad is absolutely awful. I, I don't know who his parents were. But there must have been beat someone, me to it. Beat me to it. There must have been somebody in the in the producers <laughs> or something to to get him. And and granted, the lines that he's given aren't exactly the easiest lines to say. But God, he's so overacting and ob- obnoxious. It's absolutely dreadful. There was a sense that they were coming up to their sort of time, but their time wasn't. It wasn't yet time to to move on, you know. We, we were quite a few years from like the, the next generation um, TV series being being brought in. So I, I think it's actually done really well in some respect. I mean, one of the things I actually do love is the fact that the Enterprise is is going to have its undignified fate. It's going to be used as like a museum piece or, or or just like taken down, and they bring it out for one last ride of glory. The Enterprise, in a way, to me, is the, the Enterprise sacrifices itself as a character so the rest of the crew can mm. defeat the Klingons. Yeah. It doesn't go out in a, in a whimper. It's not like the Art Royal, but basically just sort of like we're used for scrapping really sadly. The Enterprise went out in one last blaze of glory. And that's something I really, really like. It had a purpose. It, it wasn't like in Generations where the Enterprise, where that Enterprise goes and, and basically just is destroyed. Here, its sacrifice meant something. And for, for as you always see the, the ship being the character, I think that is something that was really, really fitting in this one. Well, I think uh, a lot of this film is the last hurrah, isn't it? You know, the, so the team get together for their one final last hurrah, and even the ship uh, does that. And I love that piece at the end. It's very sad, but when the Enterprise bec- becomes a fireball, yeah. I, I was just I was surprised it lasted as long as it did. Because if you have passwords like that, I'm amazed the cleaner didn't accidentally <laughs> blow it up. Yeah, I, I did laugh at Kirk's password. Right? It's like zero, zero, zero. You know, yeah, that was. It's almost like one, two, three. But but yeah, I, I actually love the fact that the Enterprise doesn't just like explode in, into wreckage. It actually turns like almost into a comet. But there's almost something like majestic as it sort of fades away into the distance. And and I think that's that's really really good. Apparently, something I didn't realize is that the um, I think one of the explosions in it was actually the explosion of the Death Star. Apparently. Oh, because ILM did the effects, didn't yeah. they? So they reused their old, yeah. Okay. Well, I've been fairly negative while you two have been positive on it. Let's, let's <laughs> really, at... Jeff? God, <laughs> we're <know>. surprised. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just saying what I see. But I'm going to tell you now my two favourite scenes of the movie, and, and we'll just go around and see what you think on your own favourite scenes. For me... The two best scenes, one has to be the best joke of the film with Duan's up your shaft line when he's on the Excelsa. <laughs> I thought that was a brilliant <laughs> sequence. Brilliant. I really loved it. Um, but I also loved the bridge of the Excelsa as well. I mean, you got actors of the calibre of James B. Seekin holding some sort of Roman tribute and Miguel Ferrar in small roles on that. And the whole thing goes wrong on them. It's almost like a Saturday Night Live skit on Star Trek, really, coming up with the good morning captain line, uh, a riff on the 2001 joke. And I thought all of that sequence was really, really well done, deserving of a better film. What about you, Darren? What were your two favourite bits? One of them I really like is is when Spock's father arrives at, at the wake, because for a moment, the, the, how he's got his hood, he actually looks a little bit like Spock. And you see Kirk just freeze for a minute, which also like echoes what happened earlier when um, Kirk went into um, Spock's quarters and McCoy sat there in the dark. How it's silhouetted, it looks like, again, it looks like it's Spock. So, so for me, that, that I like that scene. It's, it's almost like a sort of how the ghost of Spock is sort of, you know, is weighing heavily on Kirk. But an- another scene that I really like is the whole thing when the Enterprise is escaping. It's heading around the space stage. Oh, and, I was going to say that. Uh, and, and in the background, you see the um, the Excelsior coming around, and they're all arrogant. They're all sort of huh, like silly Enterprise trying to escape. It, it makes that warning to Kirk saying, you know, if you do this, you'll never sit in the chair again. And Kirk just has a look on his face, and it's like, I don't care. This is right what I'm doing. And then the whole thing just sort of like goes kaput. 
and I, I love that the fact that they've got the technology and the style and everything that the enterprise has um, they basically outwitted them so so I love that little shot at scene as well well I liked the bits with the the enterprise itself so like Darren's just said that bit where they're escaping I liked it arriving in dock and the it looked very majestic even though it's battered and and, and been through a really really uh, epic battle with Khan it still looks majestic as it pulls into dock and I like that and I like the bit with the space door and them having to to open that to get inside and as I've mentioned before I like the bit where the enterprise is destroyed at the end and it almost turns into a phoenix, you know, as it, as it becomes a, um, a meteor going through the atmosphere. I, I liked all of that. And the the other bit I liked, and we've already mentioned it, was just the last scene, the very last scene, where they all gather around together and they almost have a like a, a group or a team hug. I thought that's a nice ending. Very TV ending. Let's not get away from that point. I thought that was a... A nice ending to a fairly simple, fairly straightforward Star Trek adventure, which was more of a TV series than it was of a proper movie. So summing up everybody's thoughts on this film, two of you really liked it. I didn't. You know, watching this again, are you now looking forward to catching up with four? Yeah, definitely. I really like this uh, this little trilogy. At the time, I, I can't say that I was really excited to see the next one because I think the thing about Rafa Khan and this one is both of them end, they didn't end in cliffhangers, but they end, ended in on such a way that you could be thinking this would be a fitting goodbye. You know, like in the second one, sort of Kirk gets gets back to his sort of his being the old Kirk and, and feels young again. In this one, the crew are all, all back together. And even though it says, you know, the adventure lives on, it, I'm glad that they carried on with Star Trek, but if he never made any more, that little ending would have been sort of like, you know, satisfying but yeah obviously when they said that they were you know making more star trek and you know uh, i i I was overjoyed you know i I, this time i was like you know really happy that the um that that star trek was continuing on and gonna get even bigger within the next 10 years it's a good point you make it doesn't actually come up with the words the end it just said as you say the adventure continues continues yeah the series started so poorly with the first one uh, and, know, and 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 they picked it up in the second one. They really picked it up in the second one. And this one was more of a holding pattern. They took took all the good things in the second one, built it up a, a bit more, uh, and and produced something that not it's not got the quality of Wrath of Khan, but it's it's solid. It does its job, and it they've then got two good ones, and now they can do a springboard to the next one. And the, I'm really looking forward to our discussion about the Star Trek four because that, to me, is uh, the one I really liked. All I'll say is it should have been Star Trek, The Search for Spock, and oh, he's dead again. Um, that would have made it better. <laughs> God, so, so, okay. Jeff's director's cut, the miserable bastard version. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like I, it. I, I want to see your line of children's books. <laughs> if you ever were to write children's books, I think that would be a cracker. Clyde Barker would be my role model. Um, (laughs) So that's our take on Star Trek, The Search for Spock. It's split opinion here. The majority are in favour of it. The minority, who's always right, are against. And um, (laughs) anybody listening to this has different takes or backs up me, please write in, let us know. Because next time we'll be talking about the final part of this trilogy, Star Trek, The Voyage Home. So let's take it up to Warp Factor 5, guys, and rename this at the Flix 3, The Search for Neil, wherever he might be today. (laughs) So on we go. Warp Factor speed, lads. My father says that you have been my friend. You came back for me. You would have done the same for me. Why would you do this? Because the needs of the one outweighed the needs of the many. I have been, and ever shall be, your friend. Yes. Yes, Spock. The ship. Out of danger. You saved the ship. You saved us all. Don't you remember? Jim. 
Your name is Jim. Yes. <laughs>